I'm Karen Lewis, and welcome to Recovery Bites, a show that gets real about recovery, where we welcome voices in the field and voices of experience. Join me for candid interviews with experts in eating disorder and mental health recovery. Listeners can look forward to new perspectives, meaningful conversation, diverse connection, and compelling personal narratives that make a powerful difference in how we live. Episodes focus on life beyond recovery, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges, and the authentic accounts of recovered lives. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone, here we go. This is a really, really interesting interview today. My guest is Julie Duffy Dillon, and we are going to talk about the intersection of PCOS and eating disorders. There is a lot of really rich information in this episode, so let's just jump right in. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites. I am so excited to introduce our guest today, Julie Duffy Dillon. Julie, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. I am thrilled to be here. It's such an honor. So thanks for the invite. Julie, you have so much to share with listeners, and I'm I'm I don't know if I'm surprised or not surprised that you are the first guest coming on the show to talk about PCOS. So, can you tell the listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do, and then we'll get into the conversation. Sure. Um, so, I help people with PCOS who are at diet rock bottom, and that may look like someone who's recovering from diet culture or recovering from an eating disorder. And I help them to reclaim their expert role of their body. And at the same time, I'm wanting them to like burn their diet books and also name the anti-fat bias that has really messed up PCOS care. And um, that's something that as I was working as a dietitian 20 years ago and starting to um, help people with their eating disorder recovery, I kept meeting people with PCOS And, you know, those who are listening, who are um, healthcare providers, you may also appreciate like how there's just so little information, but yet so many people have this condition. And I was just struck with like how pervasive uh, weight loss, um, the push to lose weight, and really just the expectation for people to practice eating disorder behaviors in order to access PCOS healthcare. And, um, so part of what I hope to do with people also is to help them to name that, like they're not broken, like all these things that they're using to kind of just navigate their health, that's what's broken. And so I'm hoping to like rally together with people to help change that. Um, yeah. And so what, at this point I'm, um, you know, I've been a dietitian now for 20 years. And so I help people through my podcast, uh, it's called love food. And I also, um, have an, uh, an online community that's a course with, um, that helps people to like 
pick up all these kind of systems and tools to help them to, again, like appreciate that they're not broken. And you've been taught to like, think your body needs to be fixed. And I know Karen, you agree, like that's not the issue, (laughs) not it. Not only is that not the issue, but it's powerful when you referenced it as people being taught how to do eating disorder behaviors to manage, shall we say, PCOS. And I have, I, I heard on one of your other podcasts, and this number may be so off. And if it is, maybe we'll edit it out. So I don't, I'm not embarrassed. Just kidding. Just kidding. We don't do that. Did you say on a, on a podcast episode that one out of 10 people are born with PCOS or it's at least one out of 10 there's, um, and it's one out of 10 people who are born with ovaries. So it could be, there's some, some places that are saying one in seven, some even one in five, like it's, it's a really common condition, but it also is one that's like hard to pinpoint. It has some, um, it's a, it's a diagnosis of exclusion. So it's, it's not like, Oh, you have strep throat. Yes or no. (laughs) That's really easy. So PCOS has some more ambiguity, but yeah, there's a lot of people who experience this condition. Most are not diagnosed though. Can you explain to listeners what diagnosis from exclusion or out of exclusion means? Because I'm not sure if everybody understands that. Sure. So, you know, PCOS is this endocrine disorder that results in symptoms. Yeah. This like hormonal imbalance that has symptoms that can kind of be grouped together And, you know, people with PCOS, um, have like, uh, there's like three different kinds of criteria that like, whether they have irregular or absent periods, um, signs of high androgens, like more facial hair than they thought they should have. Um, and then also these kind of quote, cis bunny ears, cis on the ovaries. Um, and if someone has like two out of three of those, then doctors will, then also like check off boxes to make sure that they don't have other things like Cushing's. Um, there's, there's other conditions that they have to just rule out. Um, and so it's kind of like, oh, we know you don't have these other things and you meet two out of these criteria. So we think it's this. And, and I know it's like, it's, it's, it's so frustrating because so many people for a good year or so will say, I just questioned it. And that was a part of the struggle. Like what is going on with my body? It is, it is an, I'm, I'm going to use the word interesting. That's absolutely not the word I'd, I'd like to choose. Um, it's, I, I'm going to have to stick with that. And I, I apologize, everyone. Again, that's not the emotion that I want to get across or the, the descriptive, but, you know, we live in such a diet culture obsessed world. And here is a disorder or a syndrome that is like the antithesis of what people are quote unquote striving for, for this ideal body, ideal body image, things like that. And I have to imagine that when a doctor or a dietitian prescribes, and I put that in air quotes, a diet, they run with it. What happens when that goes too far. What happens? Where does the what happens when you see the intersection, shall we say, of eating disorder and PCOS? Oh, yes. Did I say that correctly? Yeah. And it's hard to pick words sometimes. Um, I have to just like <laughs> agree with you because like interesting, I don't know, because uh there's just so much emotion with this experience. And the the thing that people have taught me, and, and I have to also mention that I don't experience PCOS. 
I don't have a lived experience with it, just so your listeners know. And I feel really grateful that over the last 20 years, people have helped me to um, appreciate it a lot more. I can't say I understand it because I never have had this lived experience, but what people have described over and over again is basically being told they have to diet. They have to, in order to not uh, have some really bad things happen to them with PCOS. Um, and with half to diet, you know, it kind of depends on what year you get diagnosed on how that diet looks, <laughs> you know, um, it's not rooted in any real science because, uh, you know, over and over again, um, PCOS research keeps coming up with like, well, we don't really have any diets that help people, um, long-term and, and honestly, they just keep saying, so just pick one. And, uh, so people then are just told this information that doesn't even have any scientific backing. And what happens with PCOS and where, you know, uh, the, the majority of, uh, my career in eating disorders, like the person I worked with the most was people trying to recover from an eating disorder and, and experiencing PCOS. And it's, it's such a big trap because, um, this, this, um, syndrome, um, for many people promotes their body to have really high circulating insulin levels. And when, you know, insulin is a, a really cool hormone, it basically helps open the door to the cell. So we get energy from food. And when you have really high circulating insulin, what's happening is the door just gets jammed and it can't open. And so the body sends more and more and more, which then tells the body like, Oh, we're hungry. You need to eat. You need to eat that loaf of bread, that plate of brownies, whatever. Like it's like a primal kind of craving. And I, I was told recently by someone like that word craving is so minimizing. It's not a craving. It's like, just like this, I have to, or I'm going to die. And it's every cell in the body is starving just about in those moments. And the reason why that intersection of eating disorders and PCOS happened so much is because people will do what they're told. And because of this high circulating insulin, um, and they'll be doing what they're told, what I don't, you know, outside of explaining what those things are, you know, people follow the diet that they're told to do. And yet their weight often would just keep going up. And then eventually because of these primal cravings, people would um, end up experiencing like these, these feelings of like, I can't control my food intake. Um, and so it was this, this, this really big swing of a pendulum of restriction and seeing weight go up and then told you're not trying hard enough. And then also uh, for many people evolving into like a binge restrict cycle and then just blaming themselves when again, like this diet that they were told they had to do, there's no scientific evidence that it actually is health promoting for most people with PCOS. So it's crap that they are even told to do it. And so, um, it can feel, even though so many people have this condition, people tell me that they feel so alone and so ashamed that they can't do this, this one thing that's supposed to be simple, like eating. And we do all the time. Right. And, um, it's, it's, it's really, um, it just, it's heartbreaking because people are feeling so, um, broken and alone when really they're given these awful tools that push them into this place. Like, as we know, it is eating disorder providers. It takes years people for people to recover from this and they don't have to suffer like this. Like there's lots of options to explore, to help with the symptoms of PCOS. Um, and yeah, I just wish that they weren't told that they had to diet because that is the biggest myth out there. And I'm curious how much 
the the pendulum swinging between restricting and binging. Now we know what that does on somebody without PCOS. How does that affect the symptoms of somebody with PCOS? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, if someone was like a robot, which I know we're not, but just looking at like the physiology of it, <clears throat> excuse me, the the act of restricting on PCOS ends up um, just like with anybody else promotes like a malnourishment. So um, when the body is not getting enough food with PCOS, it ends up causing even more hormonal imbalance um, and also perpetuates more inflammation. Now, inflammation and insulin are two words that I think are like diet culture magnets. So I'm, I'm not saying in a way like this means you need to restrict and, and, and actually the opposite because this kind of chronic inflammation that people with PCOS experience, um, part of why it gets um, even worse is because of the chronic restriction. And, you know, we have some ways to kind of measure that when people go to the doctor getting lab tests done. And we can see as people start to eat more according to how their body needs to eat, that the inflammation goes down, not up. Um, but as that starts to go to, as inflammation gets worse, it makes people feel really tired. It makes more hormones um, worse. It makes the cycles um, cycles being like uh, ovulation and fertility. It worsens that. And it's such a gimmick, you know, diet culture has this like ability in the short term to sometimes help some of those things like help with cycle length and inflammation and insulin levels in the first few months. But just like everything else, like long-term it really can, it makes PCOS worse, not better. Um, but again, unfortunately people tend to blame themselves for that and not the actual diet. And what also happens with somebody's mood with PCOS, given the fact that first of all, I know for myself, if I'm overtired, my mood is low. And so if this affects energy, I know that hormonally, when my hormones, when things are shifting around in my body, my moods are switched. So, so how does this impact somebody's mood? And is it something that say a typical, and I don't know why I said typical, but that an antidepressant can, can navigate, you know, can help with, or, you know, DBT skills or like, this is really the crossover of physical health and emotional health mm-hmm. and it's crux. Yes. For sure. So something to keep in mind with PCOS is that it starts in the brain, in the hypothalamus, which is where like hormones are regulated, including the ones that uh, help us with mood, like in mood regulation, you know, serotonin and dopamine, like think about all those hormones and how PCOS starts in that hub. And for many people, the first symptom of PCOS is some kind of mood disorder right around puberty. And so as people start to use the tools that they're given like restriction, um, and over-exercise to manage this condition, what ends up happening is it, again, it just makes that insulin issue even worse. And of course it promotes more fatigue. And so, um, having this higher circulating insulin, what I tend to see happen is really pervasive, um, debilitating anxiety. You know, if, if a person has really high insulin levels and they're not eating enough, and the body's like, for lack of a better word, like freaking out because it's not getting enough nutrition. So of course there's going to be more anxiety. Like you need to go hunt for some food and, um, you have to like, your brain is going to want you to be able to survive. And, um, the other thing that ends up happening for a lot of people is even like the, 
um, that fatigue, that kind of heaviness with fatigue, or just, we just can't get out of bed kind of feeling that comes for a lot of us with depression. Um, that's also something that people will describe and we can connect again, like how the physiology of, um, restriction with this high circulating insulin levels, it wipes out our muscle storage of, of glucose. You know, our body has these like ways to get glucose to our brain. We're not eating enough food. Um, and one of them is, is storing a form of glucose in our muscles, but with, with PCOS, when someone's restricting that gets wiped out right away. And then also our liver can make its own glucose. It wipes that out too. And so people will often be like, my muscles feel like a bag of rocks. You know, I just can't get out of bed. And again, if we're like thinking of people as like robots, which we're not going to do, but if we think about just like the physiology is really what I'm trying to say, that alone is going to provoke a mood disorder experience, but then also like living with that chronically, because it is a chronic condition, how that alone too can evolve into um, adjusting and experiencing um, depression and anxiety. And for most people with PCOS that I've worked with, the typical tools like DBT and CBT and, and, and some um, medications, um, they just don't have as much oomph. And um, I don't have a lot of words to describe it, but just uh, like, just, yeah, that's what I I've witnessed from so many people. And so for clinicians working with PCOS, I think it's really helpful to know that like this condition can complicate mood disorders, just like hypothyroidism can make a person feel depressed. I think as, a, as counselors, we're often taught that, you know, and I think PCOS has a, needs to be similarly in that space too. And, um, so yeah, if you're a clinician, um, a helper, um, you, you're going to need to have a bigger toolbox. Um, and we need to, in order for people to be able to, um, feel more at home in their body, you know, what is in that toolbox? Because we've talked about what doesn't work. We talked about what can make things worse. Let's, let's look at it from the perspective of, okay, here it is. This is the diagnosis. Now what? Yeah, that's a great question what's in that toolbox. And, um, I think about there's like layers to helping people connect with what tools they need living with PCOS. And a lot of it starts with like naming the neglect that you experienced with diagnosis and treatment and actually finding out what PCOS means to you and your body. Like what is it actually doing and what is it affecting? What hormones is it affecting for you? And, um, with that information, then learning how your body communicates and how it, and when I say communicates, I mean, um, through cravings, through fatigue, um, through the symptoms, how it lets you know that it needs something. And, um, from there, um, so much of it comes down to probably like a lot of other kind of clinical experiences that therapists experience where you need to meet people where they are and help them figure out what tools are going to work for them and what aren't. And with that all being said, as like the dietitian, when I have my dietitian hat on, I think about how people need time for their body to recover. Um, I know you talk a lot about eating disorders on this podcast and like, you know, it takes time for the body to go through that nutritional rehabilitation and having PCOS, I think it takes even longer. And so giving people permission, that's like one of the biggest tools of all, I think is like permission to take the time that you need to actually 
um, heal. And when I say heal, I don't mean cure the PCOS because that doesn't exist, but to like recover from all the neglect that the medical system has pushed on you and, um, kind of like level the playing field in a way, like let your body be able to be nourished. And, um, for some people with PCOS, what that means is having to do a lot of work with grieving their body as it's going to be, as it is right now, um, by moving away from the scale. I mean, that's a really big deal. And, um, you know, I say this as a, uh, a thin woman, you know, this is not something that I have lived experience with. And I think it's really important for people with that lived experience who are um, therapists, you know, helping people to do that grief work is just so, um, so important and, um, a really important tool in that experience. And, um, I don't know, I feel like that's just kind of like the beginning part, but I hope that helps answer your question of like, what even to put in that toolbox, but it needs to be a big toolbox. (laughs) I'm sure it does. Are there themes? I don't know if that's the right word. Are there, are there themes of what people have been misdiagnosed with other than you just need to lose weight or things like that? Because I'm imagining that there are some people listening right now be, saying to themselves, I've been experiencing this and I've never heard about this. And again, it is amazing to me, the, the numbers of people that have PCOS and the amount of exposure, the, the limited amount of exposure that it gets. So what are some other things that people have been misdiagnosed with? So I, I see this from two different angles. Um, so I hope that's okay. <laughs> but, but certainly um, when people um, who are restricting and also not getting their period, a lot of times they're diagnosed with hypothalamic amenorrhea. And um, there's something about someone who's not in a body that looks thin, um, or malnourished appearing like that's so vague, right. That can lead to a lot of misdiagnosis in this area. And, um, so there's, there's people who often are diagnosed with PCOS, um, who are, um, in a body that people don't see as that thin, um, which in, once a person starts to eat enough, no, really, they just had hypothalamic amenorrhea. Um, and, and if a listener is like, what is that? Um, that is when someone um, is not getting enough energy through their food intake to meet their energy needs. And it causes some cysts on the ovaries that they look different, but they look similar enough that it often gets confused and cycles are gone. So pe- that people lose their periods. Um, and so that happens, but the, the thing that most people that will tell me is like, oh, I went to my doctor because I was really tired and I didn't have any cycles. And they just told me I had a metabolic syndrome, which is, you know, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, high insulin levels. And I was, they were just told just to lose weight. Um, and, you know, basically lump it into, um, I don't like using the the O words that are describing like a body size, but you know, a lot of times that's just the diagnosis that's slapped on there. But the, the flip side of that, like the misdiagnosis kind of part of the conversation that I see happen a lot is people are diagnosed with PCOS because of a cycle issue, um, or because of signs of high androgens like testosterone, 
And they basically are just told that it affects their fertility and that's it. And then when they start talking to people like me who are, you know, naming this fatigue and the mood disorders, dry eye, hypothyroid, is it like all these other things that come with PCOS and people are like, I did not know that all these other experiences I'm having were tied to the PCOS. And whenever I talked to my doctor about them, I, they, I was just dismissed and told just to eat less and it'll fix it. So that's a big part of like the misdiagnosis kind of piece that um, I think really gets in the way with a person's relationship with their body because they are just kind of gaslit. Like, oh, it's just in your head. You just need to restrict more and you'll feel better. You know, I, I, I do agree with the word grieving. Like there is a grieving process that needs to be done after years and years and years of feeling like you are doing something wrong. Saying walking into a doctor's office and saying, this is what I'm experiencing and them slapping a diet on it and saying that'll fix it. So first of all, that in and of itself is horrible that, that that's what, what would be assigned a diet. And again, what, how somebody feels like they are failing because they're being set up for expectations that are never going to be met which also affects their mood and self-esteem and sense of self and trusting themselves, just like everything you said. And getting that diagnosis might be a fabulous thing, but at first it could be really, really upsetting and saying, why have I been doing this to myself? Why didn't anyone else know this? Why is it so underdiagnosed? Do you know um, I think that there's a lot of misogyny in the PCOS community. And I say that because there is a lot of ambiguity and differences within people with PCOS. And there's also not a cure, you know, there it's a chronic condition. And so there's there's even um articles within medical journals. Uh, like editorials talking about, should we even diagnose people with PCOS? Is it responsible because we don't have a cure? Are we just going to make people anxious for no reason? Which I'm like, oh, are you saying that uh, we can't handle it? Like, is that why you're saying like, um, and the, the, the thing that ends up happening for so many people is that then they are just told like, Hey, when you're ready to get pregnant, come back, which that's why I'm like, oh, there's so much misogyny because so people who, who ovulate, like their only purpose is to make children. Um, there are a lot of people who that's just not something that they're really interested in. And they also have the whole rest of their body to like, um, that are going to be affected by PCOS. And, um, the other part of that too, is like how weight is a part of the experience for a lot of people, even though people can be any size and have PCOS, like that's something that like basically um, PCOS research finds that size diversity is the same within the PCOS community as like the general population, but weight is such a big part of the discussion that I think people are like, well, if people just lose weight, then it'll manage anything. So why even research it anymore? You know, it kind of stops there. Which is terrifying. Yeah. That's terrifying. Mm-hmm. 
because first of all, we do live in such a fat phobic society that it is, it is upsetting that the first thing a doctor will say is let's put you on a diet and see what happens. That's upsetting. Second, if they're saying this is chronic and we don't all actually want to like admit that we can't find a cure, which by the way, there are chronic illnesses that don't have cures. But again, what are you saying to the person who's experiencing it we don't let them, if we don't name it, I, I, I'm my word. Those were not eloquent words. I apologize, truly those, but it's, it's really appalling. Um, and leaves people in a shame spiral. Are there ways though, to manage the fatigue, the dry eyes, the discomfort? What are, what are things that you tell people that can help them navigate with a chronic illness? Yeah. I, I think actually you were really eloquent there. So I just want to tell you that because yeah, I think naming is so important and this is why, I mean, I think if people can, um, connect with that, like, oh, it's not in your head, you know, you didn't just make this up, which I think is again, a more misogyny is really a problem in this. And then they can find tools that help them. And what, what those tools look like you know, first and foremost, um, the most important tool, and I mean, especially as a dietitian, I'm going to really be in on this is like, you need to make sure you're eating enough. And I think, um, most of us are socialized and trained to think we don't need as much as we think and having PCOS and having your body, having to do all this extra work with this hormonal imbalance and all this extra inflammation because of that, you're need you're going to need more than other people. And even though your body may be higher weight than other people, like it's really common and normal and typical for people with PCOS to need more than people who don't have it because your body has to do all this extra work. And so that's like the first tool I think is really important. And, and from there, um, you know, most people with PCOS are told that they have to like cut out certain food groups and, um, exercise more. And I am like, no, 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 we need you to find what you need to add. There's certainly things that you can add to, um, as you figure out how much food you need, that's enough for you. Um, adding things in strategically during the day, you may find helps with those energy levels. And it's really cool. Like they don't, they don't do anything if you're not eating enough. (laughs) If you're not eating enough, it's like your body is just like, no, I, I can't do anything with this yet. And then from there, there's like supplements, there's medications and, um, also like connecting with actually how much rest do you need? You know, um, it's usually more than everybody else. Um, and we live in a world that doesn't like that. Right. We're supposed to be productive. I know. And you had said something earlier that I wanted to highlight because it was just fascinating. And it it just caught my attention. Depending on what year you were diagnosed or before diagnosed, whatever year they told you to go on a diet, that's the fad diet of the year that you went on, which just goes to show A, diets don't work. There's never been an argument about eating three meals, three, what, there's never been, that's never changed. 
that's been consistent, you know, nutritional value, having enough carbohydrates, enough fats, enough protein, enough that has never that has always been consistent. The diet industry has changed from the no carbohydrate to the grapefruit diet to the <laughs> no nightshade tomatoes, you know, all this, all this stuff. And it didn't even dawn on me how that impacts someone depending on what year they started going to seek help. I just wanted to point that out. I just thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it shows the weakness in, in the medical care system with PCOS. And seriously, like there was um, this really big published report. Um, it's a, it was the 2018 evidence-based guidelines for PCOS care where they, um, they had, I think it was like 3000 different clinicians and researchers come together to put together these guidelines. And, and then there's a section on nutrition, which that's great. Um, and they said, you know, looking at all the research, there is not one diet that helps people with PCOS and weight is not the cause of PCOS, which I haven't said that in this interview yet. Like, I hope people know that like weight does not cause it. It is passed down through families. So important, but um, weight did not cause it. There's no diet that helps it, but that's where like what they're just so like married to the weight, the weight loss kind of paradigm where they just have to say then. So just pick one. And that's why, you know, it's probably was sugar busters and then Atkins and then paleo and then keto. Like it just, that's why it just changes a little bit per year. And who knows, maybe in the eighties and nineties, it was eat snack wells. <laughs> oh my God. I forgot about snack wells. Oh. I'm a child of the eighties, so I can't forget them. <laughs> yes. So am I. So as you said that, I, I can actually picture them in our mm -hmm. cabinet at home. Mm -hmm. Isn't that wild? I just had a total flashback to my childhood. <laughs> Let me let me take a step back. Is there anything besides the the pendulum swinging of, you know, restricting to binging and I would imagine purging's involved with somebody with PCOS because even if they eat a little bit they're not going to be losing weight and all this this whole cycle. So how how often do you see eating disorders and PCOS combined? Or is it, am I, am I getting, am I splitting hairs too much? Are they, are they always connected or what are your thoughts about that? Well, for me, the word always is always hard because I'm like, well, I'm sure there's some people who are doing okay and aren't affected and have some great robust genetic material that's not triggered by it in a family of origin that is not dieting. Um, I haven't met very many people like that. Um, and I, you know, part of the thing for me is my specialization has been eating disorder recovery and PCOS, like the intersection. So I just know it happens a lot, but it's also, those are the people that come to me. And, um, when I work with people without an eating disorder history, um, as we peel back the layers, it's just, no one ever said that they were experiencing eating disorder, but they really were. And again, for a lot of people with PCOS, they're following the restriction and they're doing what they're told to do, but they're still gaining weight. And so they're just told they're not doing it well enough. And if you just looked on paper, the data of like what, like a food journal or something, what this person was eating, it wouldn't take that many people to be like, oh, that's anorexia. And 
that is like the most common type of eating disorder that I've seen with PCOS, but most of the data doesn't show that because I don't think the researchers are asking that question. Like do people with PCOS experience anorexia because of the size part of it for a lot of people, again, with PCOS, I think their body protects them with this high circulating insulin. And so the weight doesn't go down. Um, the binge eating part, um, binge eating disorder, there's, there's a number of research articles in PCOS and binge eating. And, um, so I have data on that. And, um, in one study from 2017, um, I think there was like 300 plus people studied and 39% of the subjects in the study had met full criteria for binge eating disorder. 69% met at least one of the criteria. And what they found in this is that weight cycling predicted the binge eating for people with PCOS. And again, I don't have data on anorexia and PCOS again, because I think of like researchers are just not asking that question. So if you're a researcher wanting to look into PCOS, can you study anorexia and PCOS please? Or just ask that question somehow in the survey. Um, that'd be great. And, um, you know, the, the, the thing with that, that one research from 2017, that was quoting some of that, those percentages, the thing that they said in there is like, Hey, uh, weight cycling predicts binge eating and PCOS. So, um, we need to psychologically help people, um, to understand this. And then it said, I have to laugh because it's so ridiculous, but it's not, it's not funny, but just that then it says, um, that we need to then help people find sustainable ways to manage their weight. Like they couldn't say, Hey, stop pushing people to lose weight. Cause it's causing an eating disorder for 39% of people. That's all like, it's ridiculous. So yeah, there's, a, a, I, I don't know exactly how many people with PCOS have an eating disorder. Um, I see studies of like you're four times more likely, five times more likely to have an eating disorder with PCOS. Um, and I bet there's a lot of people listening who maybe never would have named eating disorder, but I'm hoping that they can like look at their lived experience and be like, you know what? I think I actually have been experiencing eating disorder. Yeah. I, I have a question and this is a hard turn, kind of a hard turn. Is there anything about the socioeconomics of people that have PCOS are then go to a doctor are assigned a diet of foods that are not accessible to them. And they then, like, I, I, I'm not even sure exactly where I'm going with this, Julie. So help me out if you can, or bear with me. <laughs> I'm like, hello. No, just kidding. Um, I don't know. That's got to be part of going into telling people it's their fault. They're not eating the right food. They're not getting the right food. They're not... I don't know. Am I again rambling or no, I think you're onto something actually. And it's something that I don't have a lot of like evidence-based <laughs> research behind in PCOS. I do have a lot of time thinking about it and people who I've been sitting across from describing their lived experiences with trauma and a sense of like the trauma that many people will think of with the word trauma or the type of trauma of living um, in poverty or um, living in a place where they didn't feel safe um, or living um, with racism and having to um, navigate these systems of oppression. And that is something that um, is not a part of the conversation enough. 
And so much of the PCOS recommendations are rooted on individual, like you, the individual can control the outcome. When we look at research, um, just for like the general population, like uh, socioeconomic status type research, uh, social determinants of health, things like that, we know that like 75% of our health outcomes have nothing to do with our behaviors. And, and then a part of that 25% is also genetics. So like in the end, it's like maybe 7% is your food intake and your movement. So really how much can we as individuals do? And, you know, I think about over the last four or five years, especially for me, um, examining my own privilege and my own bias, how I like, wow, I really did put it on the shoulders of a client. Like, here are the tools you do them. It'll make you better. And how that was, how I wish I hadn't done that. And like, and really that's why I think about the way we're going to actually make your, the listener with PCOS, like your experience better is for us to rally together to change how you're treated. Cause it's not your burden, you know, you eating some organic fruits and vegetables, it may like do a little smidge of something, but it's not going to be the thing that eliminates your inflammation, you know, uh, eliminating racism, that's going to help your inflammation more than anything else. So like, and that's not your burden to carry. That's like, we all need to do that, especially those of us with more privilege. Right. So, um, yeah, so that's why when you were asking, I was like, Ooh, yes, you're onto something meaty. I'm there with you. And I want more people to talk about it. And I don't, I don't know necessarily that I like, I don't have a lot of like clinical knowledge, but just like, just lots of observation that I'd like, there's something really important there. There definitely is. And again, I was like, I could, I knew what I was trying to say in my mind, but then I was like, help me out here, Julie. I can't get all the (laughs) words out. It's a concept, but it's not fully coming. I say that to my clients all the time. I'm like, I know Mm -hmm. what I'm trying to say in my head. It makes a lot of sense for whatever reason though. It cannot come out. I cannot articulate it in a way. Sometimes words just get in the way, don't they? Yeah. By the way, I agree. I agree. It is a really, really interesting. That's like the study underneath this part, like underneath the the actual, you know, the diagnosis of the syndrome and things like this. And now we have to go even deeper. And by the way, that is everybody's responsibility. It's not on the person who's walking into your office who is suffering. It is, it is our responsibility. And I don't know if we all look at it from that perspective. Mm-hmm. I think we... I think it's important to like, just sit with that, you know, and, and, uh, how we can, yeah. Cause it's, it's not the individual's responsibility and it's not going to go anywhere until we all do it together. So yeah. I agree. I agree. As, as much as I hate to wind this interview down, this actually, oh, I know Julie and I both have like little tears streaming down our face. <laughs> this, this seems like a really beautiful place to start closing it up and stuff for us to all think about, like really, really important stuff for us to think about. So Julie, I do have one question for you before we end the interview. But before I ask that, is there anything that I didn't ask or anything that you wanted to say? And again, I'm so sorry for the abrupt ending. I feel like this could have gone on for hours and hours. So, but is there anything I didn't ask you? No, but you know 
I think it's really important for anyone living with PCOS or anyone who knows someone with PCOS to just remind yourself that this condition, like experiencing it is not your fault. Um, it, it's the shame that has been put on you is, is not supposed to be there. And, um, yeah, you didn't cause this. This is something that was passed down through generations, passed down through your family. And while there's no cure, um, there's definitely ways to, um, manage symptoms and there's some tools out there and hopefully there's more as time goes on because now you deserve help to feel at home in your body too. I also know Julie that, that I'm, I'm definitely going to direct people to your website, which is in the show notes because you have courses and literature and things to help people. And, and that that's just invaluable. And I'm really going to encourage people to go to your website and see what things you have uh, to offer because it's so important. So thank you. I appreciate it. Before I let you go, though, I do have another question. And that question is, Julie, if someone were to write about you on a bathroom stall, what would it say? (laughs) I'm picturing the bathroom stall, right? I feel like I'm back in high school in the stall. Actually, I'm in college at a certain pub that I used to go to. <laughs> and it says, Julie helped me connect the dots. Julie, that's beautiful. I really love that. Oh, thanks. I I, I, I feel like what I'm doing when I'm talking to people is just, let's just sort through the dots. Fantastic. Julie, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm I'm really, I've been looking forward to this interview. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me on your show. All right, everyone, that does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Recovery Bites. Be sure to visit recoverybitespodcast.com to join the conversation, access show notes, listen to past episodes, and more. You can also find us by searching for Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and major podcast streaming players. For weekly episode releases, you can follow us at at Recovery Bites Pod on Instagram. If you're interested in becoming a guest on the show or to submit a guest request, please visit KarenLewisEDC.com forward slash podcast sign up to begin the process. I'd also like to send out a heartfelt thank you to my producer, Jen Galvin. It is unbelievable the magic she does behind the scenes. All right, everyone. See you next week for another Recovery Bite. Thanks for listening.